Christmas, Adam. I apologize. I, I had no part in that. But no, we are excited about Christmas Eve, and we really do hope that you are able to uh, engage. We want to encourage you to invite friends and family and join us on Christmas Eve. We have those two services. It'll be a, a lot of fun because we get to celebrate the risen Savior uh, and the fact that he came as a child, that he lived out this amazing life, and that he was willing to give his life that we could have life. What, a, what an amazing thing that we get to celebrate together. So we're, we're excited about it and looking forward to Christmas Eve for that. With that in mind, we're in Romans chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn there. And as you're turning there, uh, let, me, uh, let me kind of put a little bit of context around where we have been and ultimately where we're going. We remember that uh, this, this began with Paul identifying that the gospel is the focus. He said this in verse 16, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. That is his premise, and that's what he's building on uh, and, and sharing with the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome is a, a young church. It's primarily made of uh, Jewish believers, so Jews who saw Jesus as their Messiah, uh, Yeshua as their Messiah, and uh, in faith they were following him. But then something mysterious started to happen, and that is that these Gentiles began to join in. And they began to worship along with them. And they thought, well, wait a minute. Should they, should they become Jews as well? Should they follow the Torah? Should they do these sorts of things? Uh, or is there something else that we're missing? And Paul is addressing that uh, throughout the book of Romans. We are breaking Romans into four big segments. This is the end of the first segment of Romans Road. We'll take a break and we'll pick it back up in the spring um, and through this time, we have seen that Paul, again, begins with the gospel. And then he talks about some things that are starting to creep into the church that need to be addressed. In dealing with those, we've talked about gender issues. We've talked about marriage issues. We've talked about how judgment started to creep into the church and how that was supposed to be reserved for God and to have a right handle on it. We additionally, we talked about how all have sinned, all of us have sinned and fallen short. And because that is true, there is a gift, that gift of grace that is Jesus the Christ, who is the pillar of our faith, as we're going to learn more in just a few moments. As we've talked about those things, I think it's important for us to identify that um, it at times has felt like a swift kick in the shins. Right? I mean, there have been some things that we've had to deal with and talk about and address that have been uh, painful, have been against some of the things that we've uh, embraced culturally, has been against some of the attitudes and actions that we have had personally. And it's at times hurt. And let me just ease your conscience right now. It's going to be more painful today, So, uh, just so you're aware of that. It's painful in this respect that it's very personal. Today's message is for us individually. And what I want to encourage you to do is embrace it, is to receive the message for us individually. Because you will be tempted to do this number. Oh, man, if my spouse were here, they would really need this. 
oh, if my kids were here, oh, if my parents were here, if my neighbor was here, if the person I worked with was here, oh, man, they need to hear this. That is going to be the temptation today. But it's for us individually. And I want to encourage you to embrace that. A big part of, of that embrace is uh, not, just, not just our relationship with God, but how our relationship with God affects the world around us. In 1995, DC Talk had a song called What If I Stumble? And uh, in the beginning of the song, they start with a quote from Brennan Manning. And this is the quote. I, w- I want to read it. I'll read it through once, give you a moment, and then I'll read it one more time. And this is what the quote says. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Let me go through that again. And as I talk about this, I recognize there's a temptation. The temptation is to go like this. That, that, that's not for me. That's somebody else. Oh, I know who they're thinking of. Ah, yeah, that person. What I want to encourage us to do as I read this one more time is to take it personal and to recognize that this could be any one of us at any moment. That, that all it takes is an action in the flesh instead of a step of faith. And that action in the flesh can affect and infect a person's view of Christ himself. With that in mind, and with humble intentions, let's consider this uh, quote one more time from Brendan Manning, former pastor uh, who's gone to glory since 1990 when this is quoted says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we need you. And as we walk through your word together today, I ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. I recognize, Lord, that it would be really easy for us to um, segregate uh, our, our brain space or con- compartmentalize our faith. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that by the power of your Spirit, you would not allow us to do that. That we are one person, that we are whole individually, but also corporately, and that you would help us in very real ways to embrace this spiritual message though we have to hear it through words of people. And with that in mind, Lord, I also recognize my own uh, inadequacies and ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take over, that you would speak through me and maybe even in spite of me today that you would hide me behind the cross of Calvary, that you would be glorified and honored. And for each of us, Lord, as we come together, uh, we all have different hurts. Uh, We have baggage that we bring with us. We have different things that trigger us and affect us, bother us. Lord, I I pray that those would be able to be put to the side. And again, in a real way, we would hear your word and respond in faith to it. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 4. And as you're turning to Romans chapter 4, I want you to consider that 
Uh, First of all, Jesus is the gift. We saw towards the end of chapter 3 that Jesus is offered. He is the gift. He's the grace that we receive. We didn't earn him. We didn't earn a right relationship with God. We couldn't do enough things. But Jesus is that uh, that person that allows us to have a right relationship. And as, as it was painted last week, he's the sacrifice that allows us to be justified just as if we hadn't sinned. He is the, our righteousness. His righteousness has been given to us, not because of something that we earned, but because of a gift that we've been given. And so with that in mind, I want you to consider the Church of Rome. Not the Church of Rome today, the Catholic Church. I'm speaking of the church in the first century. The church that is growing up, a group of followers of Jesus who are trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus in a diverse world. In a, in a world that oh, they, they, uh, they thought they had it. They, they followed the Torah. They loved Jesus. And now some new people are coming in from outside of, of their context, their cultural context. And they're trusting Jesus as their Savior. And the way that they look and act and worship looks a little bit different. It feels a little bit different. You could imagine that in a church like that, there could be a group of people who maybe go, you know what, we've been doing this for a long time. And, and you kids don't quite get it. And uh, it, it's sweet where you're at, but you're, you're not there. Uh, just hang in the back and watch for a while. You could see how perhaps that would happen. You could also see a group of people who feel like, well, wait a minute. Uh, you have all this tradition of man, but, but what about us? We just like want that raw following Jesus kind of relationship. And uh, I think you're letting things get in the way. And so you could see how very easily there could be some tension in the early church. And indeed there was. From a few different perspectives, when we look at the historical accounts, as pressure began to be put on the church, not just in Rome, but the church at large, there were many people who would come into the church and start to engage, and and then their lives were threatened. And then they had to make other decisions. Is, Is this worth my life? Should I let the authorities know who else was at the meeting I was at? And so you can see how distrust and disunity can be a part of it, even a hierarchy. And so Paul wants to to address this in a very unique way. And he's going to do it from the context of nationalism. You'll see what I mean as we develop this. If you're a note taker, let uh, let me give you an outline of where we're going. We're going to look at Abraham as the example. Now, Please understand, Abraham is the example. He is not the answer. That's an important piece to this. Jesus is the answer. Not in a Sunday school sort of way, not in a flippant sort of way. Jesus really is the answer that was identified at the end of chapter 3. It bleeds over into chapter 4. We're taking that information as we look at Abraham as our example. So let's look at this. Abraham, first of all, is the forefather of faith. So uh, we see his example of faith. When we look at the word faith uh, from, from the New Testament, the New Testament's written in Greek, the Old Testament primarily uh, in Hebrew. So when we look at it from the New Testament perspective, uh, faith is faith. It's the insinuation is the term believe, as we'll see as this passage unfolds in a moment. 
But the idea of believe in the Old Testament has a little bit more of a word picture to it. You could think of it as a, a pillar. Uh, you could think of it as support. So what is believe? It's to support. And what Paul seems to be insinuating throughout this chapter is that Jesus is our support that we're trusting. Much like you trusted the chair you're sitting in. Based on my weight and the structure of this chair, I feel like it can hold my weight. I'm going to trust it and sit in it. And everybody, you did good. That was a, that was a good step of faith. Trusting Jesus is similar. Uh, I, I can't do this on my own. I, I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I can't be right enough. I can't do enough things. I can't give enough money. I can't belong to the right church. I can't uh, have a genealogy perfectly that would allow me to get into heaven. Jesus is the support, the structure. I believe him. I trust him. And he holds me up. That's the word picture that we get. With that in mind, let's keep looking. Abraham is not just the forefather of faith, but also the father of all who have faith. Abraham's not just the father of all who have faith, but those who are fully convinced, and also the father of, of those whose belief were counted as righteousness. And again, we're going to flesh that out in just a little bit. Abraham, the forefather of faith. Uh, in this passage, we'll look at the precedence of faith, but also the confirmation that David gives us from Psalm 32. Let's jump into this. Uh, as we're looking at it again, I want you to understand that Paul is writing to the Romans. There, there are going to be some aspects that as we pull away, they're going to apply to us. Uh, and I, I want it to, again, let's make it personal. Uh, it's not done to beat anybody up. It's not done to frustrate you. Uh, but it is an opportunity for us to calibrate our lives, to take spiritual matters and ask some hard questions, and ask the Lord to calibrate us right back to him. And that climaxes in our time with uh, communion later. So let's look at this passage. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. I will always want to encourage you to uh, take notes off to the side, underline, highlight, uh, love that. It's really important. If not, we do have the verses up on the screen today. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast. Uh, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Let's pause there. So for the nation of Israel in the first century, they saw Abraham as their father. Uh, the father of Israel. It would be really easy for them to boast in that. Paul is going to bring Abraham together to look at as an example. As they're looking at Abraham as the example, they're going to see how Abraham is not just for the nation of Israel. He's building this by talking about works now. So, is Abraham justified? Is he declared righteous because of his works Specifically, being circumcised. Is, is that what causes him to be righteous? That's the question that's being presented. And if it is, if it's his works, then he has something to boast about. Not to God, because nobody can outdo him. Paul is good at reminding us of that. Thank you, Paul. Verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. There's that word, believed. That, and that has that idea of support. 
Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So look, look at the argument that Paul is bringing right now. The argument is uh, he has been extended a gift. The gift is found through his belief. It's not based on his works. If it was based on his works, then he's simply getting what he's earned. But he didn't earn this. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then in verse 6 through 8. Just as David, who also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are, cov- are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So even, even David is leaning into Abraham's uh, uh, life, his, his uh, example. And he's saying that... It, Blessed is the person who God is not counting our works against us, but rather there's grace extended. We see the precedent of faith. It's a matter of trust, of acknowledging that I can, I, I can allow God to support me. God's got this. I can trust him. And that's confirmed also through uh, the words of David in Psalms. The second piece, Abraham is the father of all who have faith. This is important because, again, this problem within the church of, okay, well, we're the nation of Israel, and so maybe we're somebody. And this other group was like, well, I, I don't know if that's true. Maybe, maybe we should be getting our identity through who, uh, who nationally we are. Maybe it's in our citizenship of Rome. And Paul is bringing this back to this central figure of Abraham. He's going to also identify that it's for the uncircumcised, the circumcised. Then we're going to see the faith's priority over the law. And in other words, uh, the law has value, we're going to find out, but faith is above that. And that faith's priority over the law it, it really matters. It, it matters in terms of our salvation. It matters in terms of our relationship with God and our obedience to God. And then finally, faith, uh, faith that brought forth many nations. So again, because this comes from Abraham, then this, this nationality, okay, it's not about me being a, a Roman citizen or me being a Jew. It's about my faith in God. And that's what brings us together. And Abraham is the link. Let's keep looking. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Good question in the church. Is, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So here's why that matters. If it's based on works, then that righteousness shouldn't have come to him until after the work, until after circumcision. But it's not based on the work. It's based on his belief, his faith. Because it's based on his faith, then he actually gets this righteousness extended to him before the action. 
Not completely divorced. There's action associated with the faith, but the righteousness is extended before the action. That's an important component. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Let me just pause there and say this. That, that, that's, one of the, that's one of the reasons that we're big believers in baptism after uh, someone uh, receives Jesus as their Savior. Uh, it's a sign uh, that we want to follow Jesus. It's not salvation. Like the water doesn't save us. Uh, right? It's, uh, hey, I want to follow Jesus. Jesus has commanded me to do this. Therefore, I, in obedience, I'm going to follow I'm going to follow Jesus in uh, believer's baptism. So this is a part of, uh, of that reason. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So again, for clarity, righteousness could also go to those who have been uncircumcised because of faith. Had righteousness been given to uh, to Abraham, because he was circumcised, then only those who are circumcised would be counted as righteous. Again, a struggle in the early church. What makes me right with God? For them, for many within the church, the things that I do, I earn my way to a right relationship with God. The things that I do for others... It's like, I, I don't even know the things that you do. I'm new to this. And so early on, Paul is trying to address this. This is about faith. He, he is going to identify throughout the book of Romans, there's a place for works for sure. After salvation, we don't earn a right relationship with God. We love God and obey him. Let's keep going. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So don't, don't miss that. If, if it's based on works, then faith is null and void. Like, there's no promise to us. But that's not the case. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So what do we see from the law? We see that we keep messing up. I mean, Jesus even, he takes it a step further. He, he says things like, if, if you get angry at your brother... That's, that's the same as murder. If you lust after somebody, it's the same as adultery. So, so Jesus, I mean, the way that he lays out the law for us, he gets to the heart issue, and it's even harder than, uh, than just doing this or not doing that. It's difficult. Verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but, there, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So we're again going to start talking about faith. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, 
in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. If, if Paul's trying to identify here, if you're trying to go towards nationality, you're missing the point. And by the way, if you do want to do that, we can all go to Abraham. Abraham is the example of faith. And so for those of you who are Jews and those of you who are uh, Gentiles but have entered into faith in, in Jesus, the Messiah, guess what? We, we have the same example. But the point is Jesus, as Abraham is the example to this. Again, we see that uh, this faith is for the uncircumcised, the circumcised. We see that faith is prioritized over the law. And not just that, but faith also brought forth many nations. So it was the step of faith. I can trust God. Now, what do we know about Abraham? Well, if we had more time, we could dig into uh, the narrative of Abraham and see that there were times that he went before God, right? Like, uh, he said, okay, God, I I trust that you have a plan, but this isn't working out right. I'm going to put this in my own hands, Uh, And he steps ahead of God and causes a mess. We we recognize that. But this step of faith that we see when he puts his trust in God is pretty big. And we're going to see it start to play out in this next section. The father of the fully convinced. Faith hopes in the promise and specifically the promise of God. And faith trusts in the power, specifically the power of God. Let's talk about it. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Okay, so uh, hope against hope. He's in his 90s, right? Like, oh, uh, God, God lets him know, hey, you're going to be the father of many nations. Okay, um, I don't know a lot of things, God, but one thing I do know is I'm old, <laughs> and things aren't working the way that they used to work. And we've gone through that, like I'm past that prime. And also, my wife's no spring chicken. Uh, she's in the same situation that I'm in. How's this going to work? Well, at least initially, it's, well, we're going to trust God. Uh, we're going to see how God develops this, how, how God works this out. Again, this is a section where we know he got ahead of God a little bit and, and goes back to following. But uh, when he trusts God, it's credited as righteousness. Let's keep going. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Like, thanks for that, Paul. Uh, Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Uh, Don't miss that piece. How did he get strong in his faith? He gave God glory. Okay, God, I'm going to trust you in this place. God, you are the king of the universe. If you say this is true, I'm going to be obedient to this place. Okay, Lord, I messed up. I'm repenting. Forgive me. Okay, I'm going to follow you. I know I can trust you. It's giving God glory. And, and that's, a, that's a big piece to all of this. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So we see that this faith hopes in the promise of God, God being the point. God, I'm going to trust you. If you say this is true, I'm going to be obedient to you. 
Uh, anybody ever got ahead of God's plan? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying. Um, right? We all have done that. God, I believe you. I'm trusting you. But it's not working out the way I think. Maybe I need to put this in my own hands. I got it, God. You need me to fulfill this on it. And we step out in front of God and get in the way. God has a promise. And putting our faith or putting our trust in his support, he's supporting us, not my works, but him, uh, is what gets us there. Faith trusts in his power. He's able. He's able to do it. Intellectually, we perhaps know that. But do we know that experientially? Do we experience God's power and the transformative power of Christ in us? And that's the challenge. As we pull away from ancient Rome and look at ourselves today, that's a part of uh, where we have to go. Is, there, is God's power manifest in my life in a transformational sort of way? Do I look different spiritually 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years, whatever it was for you, uh, than I do today? Am I looking more and more like Jesus in my actions and behavior and heart attitude? Am I being transformed? Do I have faith, that support, that trusts Jesus? Let's keep going. He's the father of those whose belief were counted as righteousness. Abraham's belief resulted in righteousness, and our belief in the resurrection results in righteousness. Uh, before we get into this passage, I do want to identify something that is, is really kind of bothersome because it, it started in some mainline churches and has crept into evangelical circles, and this is what the issue is. Uh, recently, I heard someone talking about an, a Masters of Divinity class that they were in. And in this class, the professor said, it's very likely that Christianity borrowed from other religions around them in the ancient Mideast and concocted the resurrection story. In other words, that the resurrection of Jesus isn't real. As they went around the room, one person in that class of approximately 30 people said, uh, that's a lie. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we have no faith. Everyone else did not make that connection in that class at the master of divinity level. That's a high level. The point in sharing that is that same mentality has started to creep into evangelical circles where, it's, where we have heard people say things like, resurrection, I don't know, maybe it's allegorical. No, it's actual. Our faith rests on this truth. If this did not happen, if the resurrection didn't occur, we are wasting our time. But because historically we know that it happened, uh, because we recognize that this is a truth, we can stand firm on it. The resurrection occurred. It happened. Jesus rose from the grave, and my faith not just depends on it. My faith grows from it. And that's what this belief uh, identifies. Let's read the passage. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. 
It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, just as if we hadn't sinned. So look at that one more time. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, not just for Abraham, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe, who trust in the support of God. God's got it. God's holding us. His truths are, are, are factual. It is reality. I can trust him. Where he says something is good, I can trust him that it is good. Where he says it's bad, I can trust him that it's bad. I can trust him. Continuing on. Who was, uh, let me back up. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. The resurrection is central. It's a central, it's foundational to the Christian belief. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. But there is a resurrection, there is Christianity, and that's why we gather. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification? Abraham's belief resulted in righteousness. Our belief results in righteousness. It's not based on our works. However, those works flow from a belief that God has it. Abraham trusted God, and he was willing to uh, leave his family to go where God had called him to, to a land that he had never seen. He trusted in God's promises and obeyed God in those places when it was very difficult. Was he perfect? No. He messed up many times, and he addressed it. He repented, and God blessed him. So, as we prepare for communion, there are some reflection questions that I'd like to go through. Uh, Communion is a beautiful time where we come together and allow the Spirit of God to calibrate our hearts. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, reminds us that it's for the believer, first of all. So, communion is, the Lord's Supper is for those who are following Jesus. And secondly, uh, it is also a time for us to examine our hearts. As we've looked at at Romans chapter 4, I want to take a little bit of time and ask some questions. What I'd like us to do is take them personally. This is not about uh, my spouse, my kids, uh, my parents, my roommate, my neighbors, my coworkers. This, This is individually. Let's look at this. First question. Does your faith evidence the supernatural work of God in it? What I mean by that is a transformation, that, that it's God who transforms. Have you ever heard the term, nobody ever changes? <laughs> well, why do they say that? Because nobody ever changes. But when God does a transformational work, his miraculous, his mysterious work in our lives, there is transformation. That occurs from God. Is there evidence that's occurred? Secondly is fully convinced a term that would reflect your relationship with God. Why or why not? I'm fully convinced that God knows best. I'm fully convinced that I can trust him. I'm fully convinced that I can obey him. Is that a term that, uh, that you can embrace? When you think of your belief, is it hard to think of it as being counted as righteousness? 
In other words, that God's righteousness has been given to us. We've trusted. We've entered into a relationship, a covenant relationship with God. Is it hard for us to believe that God's righteousness has been given to us, or do we still feel like we have to earn it? Fourth, how have you seen Jesus at work in you, through you, and around you lately? How have you seen Jesus at work in you, through you, and around you lately? Giving us spiritual eyes to see God's work in us, through us, and around us. And finally, what faith-filled action step may the Spirit of God be leading you to do today? It may be repentance. You know what? I have stepped in front of God, and I've chosen to do my own thing, and I've spiritualized it. Maybe, maybe repentance is the next step. Maybe the next step uh, is baptism. We'll be having a baptism in January, and maybe you're saying, you know what? My next step of faith is, is baptism. That's what Jesus has called us to, and as a believer, I want to be obedient. That's great. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe your next step is sharing your faith. This is, by the way, Christmas is a great time. For those of you who send out Christmas cards, I want to encourage you, uh, put your testimony down in that. This is what Jesus has done in my life. Uh, this is how he's transformed me. And I wish, I wish God's best in your life this year. Use those as opportunities to share your faith. Maybe sharing your faith is the next step. Maybe it's obedience to his word and knowing his word and responding in faith to it. Whatever the next step is, I want to encourage you to embrace it, uh, to be obedient. As we enter into our time of communion, you'll notice these four stations. For this, two stations over here for this half of the room and two stations for this half of the room. Again, asking you to take the time to, am I a follower of Jesus? Have I committed to him? And then secondly, is there any unconfessed sin? And to address that. And then as you feel the peace of God to get the elements and return to your seats. As you return to your seats, wait until uh, at the end of this worship song, we'll come together and we'll participate together. Let me pray a blessing on you as we prepare for communion. Jesus, we do love you. And we thank you. Thank you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And Lord, as we consider the example of Abraham, we remember that you are the focus of our faith. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And Lord, we recognize you're not done. And so help us, almighty God, to repent of sin, to be able to identify it in our lives and to faithfully follow you in obedience. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. In Jesus' name, amen.